Luke chapter 5, verses 12 through 26 will be our text today. I'd like to begin by reading it. Sounds like a good idea. Verse 12, while he was in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him, Lord, if you will, you can make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I will be clean. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he charged him not to tell anyone, but to go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing, as Moses commanded, for proof to them. But now, even more, the report about him went abroad. And great crowds gathered to hear him and to be healed of their infirmities. But he would withdraw to desolate places and pray. On one of those days, as he was teaching, Pharisees and teachers of the law were sitting there, who had come from every village of Galilee and Judea and from Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was with him to heal. And behold, some of the men were bringing on a bed a man who was paralyzed, and they were seeking to bring him in and lay him before Jesus. But finding no way to bring him in because of the crowd, they went up on the roof and let him down with his bed through the tiles into the midst before Jesus. And when he saw their faith, he said, Man, your sins are forgiven you. And the scribes and the Pharisees began to question, saying, Who is this who speaks blasphemies? For who can forgive sins but God alone? When Jesus perceived their thoughts, he answered them, Why do you question in your hearts? Which is easier to say, Your sins are forgiven you, or to say, Rise and walk. But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the man who is paralyzed, I say to you, Rise, pick up your bed and go home. And immediately he rose up before them and picked up what he had been lying on and went home glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, We have seen extraordinary things this day. Amen. Father, we thank you for your word, and we thank you that you have revealed yourself to us. And now we pray, Father God, that you would open our hearts and our minds by your Spirit, to, that you would illumine this text before us, that we might get hold of what it says, that we might draw closer and nearer to you. And these things we ask in Christ's name. Amen. Well, I've heard it said, and actually I have, I've actually said this myself, that if it looks like a duck and it quacks like a duck and it walks like a duck, it's a... It's a duck. You might be wondering, what in the world does that have to do with the Gospel of Luke chapter 5? And well, not much. I just thought that would be interesting to say. (laughs) Actually, it does have some, some distant relationship. Because Luke has been talking to us about Jesus Christ, about the person of Jesus Christ, about who he is and what he does. And here's the thing that I think Luke's going to pull together today, that if he talks like God and he acts like God and does the and he has the names of God and he does the works of God, he is... See, where we've been in the book of Luke so far, well, when we began, at least up through chapter 4, Luke was describing the person of Jesus Christ, that he was the, the fulfillment of the Davidic promise, the promise that God would have uh, his son, the son of David sitting on his throne and who would rule and reign forever, that he was the promised one who would come and save people from their sins, and that we learned a lot about the person or who Jesus was. And then about two weeks ago, we began looking at Luke shifted away from the, who Jesus is to what Jesus does. And we saw that um, it began with him casting out a demon in, in, the, um, in the first recorded miracle by Luke. 
And we talked about why it was significant that Luke recorded that as the first miracle. And then we saw him healing many other people and, um, and doing a, a variety of things. So we've seen who Jesus is and what Jesus does. And now what we need to make sure we do is we can't just simply separate, well, this is who Jesus is and this is what Jesus does. And, and Luke is very cautious and very careful, I think, to make sure that we just don't isolate these into two categories. So we have this list of this is who Jesus is and a list of what Jesus does because who what Jesus does is a function of who he is. All right? We need to understand that, that the things that Jesus does, he does because of who he is. You can't separate who he is from what he does and what he does from who he is. Does that make sense? All right? And we're just going to bring those two things together for us today. So who he is determines what he does, and what he does is a function of who he is. And so when he forgives and has mercy and declares, um, gives himself divine titles, that's what he does. It's a function of who he is. And so that's kind of where we have been, maybe a little bit of where we are going. Let me give you a little preview. This is what I want to do. Luke has a very high Christology. That's just, he has a very high view of Christ. All right? And, and we're going to see that today. And we are going to gather a lot of important theological information about the person of Jesus Christ. And we're going to learn about the person of Jesus Christ through the works of Jesus Christ. But we can't just stop there. We can't just end up with a whole list of facts about who and what, who Jesus is and what Jesus does. If we end there, we become perhaps great theologians, but poor Christians. Because our goal is to learn about who Jesus is by observing what he does so that we will be compelled, we will be so compelled by who he is that we will desire to draw nearer and nearer and closer and closer to him. That we would desire him above all. And so perhaps this is illustrated well in, for those of you who are married or who have a, those of you who are married, um, you know, you spend some time getting to know your future spouse. You wanted to know stuff about them. Where were you born? What are your parents like? What was your upbringing like? Where did you go to school? What are your interests? What do you like to do? What do you don't like to do? What food do you You learn all of these things, not so that you could end up with a list of facts about your future spouse, but by learning about these facts, you grew to love them more and more and more. And that's the purpose of theology, so that we would learn about God, but not just so that we would have facts, but that we would grow closer and closer and closer to him. And as we learn about him and love him more and more, it results in the way we live out our lives. And ultimately, it comes out in our expressions of praise. So I often say that theology should lead to doxology, which is just a fancy word for saying that it leads to praise. That when we learn about him, we end up rejoicing. Just like when you begin to learn about your, few, your spouse, you would rejoice. I remember a, a guy I used to live with. He came home and he started dating this girl. And uh, 
He ended up marrying her. But I remember after their first date, he came in and he just sang her praises. He didn't literally sing. He was a good singer. But he, he just came in and declared the, the wonder and the beauty and the joy and the greatness of this girl that he had just gone out with. Folks, that's a good example. We learn about our great God and Savior. We learn about Christ. And how else then can it would be incomplete if we didn't come back and rejoice. But then our praise needs to, to lead us to a change of life. It needs to come about in how we live. If all we do is praise God, that's a great start, but we need that to have a transformed life. So the place we're going to go today is we are going to study um, and learn about Christ. We will develop a Christology today, um, a doctrine of Jesus Christ. I don't want it to end with a list of facts. Hopefully it will cause us to rejoice and give praise to God. And then as we go out from here, It will reflect the way we live our lives tomorrow and the next day and the next day and how we um, do our jobs and how we live with our families. So that's kind of where we're going. So let's look at our text today and we'll begin with verse 12. Um, And this is a fairly well-known passage of text where Jesus is, uh, he cleanses a a leper and... uh, so, here, being cleansed, then, is our, our, our main theme. And, and the setting is that while he is in one of the cities, and while he's in one of the cities, there came a man full of leprosy. And so, um, there's been some discussion as to whether or not this, this man actually came into the city or whether he was on the outskirts of the city. We're not 100% sure. To me, it seems to say, well, he was in the city. Other gospels say that he was in the city of Capernaum and that this man was an untouchable, that he was full of leprosy. I find it interesting because the parallel accounts just simply say that this man had leprosy. But Luke, the physician, says that this man was full of leprosy. Now, when we talk about leprosy, we should note that leprosy in Scripture can be used to describe a whole host of various skin diseases. In fact, the idea of leprosy just simply means flaky. Um, And so, because it's describing the symptom, it's describing what we see. And so, it can range from a whole host of of various skin conditions, everything from psoriasis to what we might call today Hansen's disease, which probably is what comes to mind when you think of leprosy, that, that disease that affects the immune system so that um, literally your body begins to rot away so that you have no feeling whatsoever. Uh, if you were to break a bone, you wouldn't even know it. This is why it was so disfiguring if perhaps as has happened, you know, you're sleeping one night and a rat chewed off a finger, you would never know it. And perhaps then it would become infected and and you would never feel it. And so little by little, you become more and more disfigured. It is a, a horrible, horrible um, disease. 
So in its most extreme form, it was greatly feared because it was debilitating, because it disfigured the person, because it was deadly, and also because it was contagious. It was often associated with sin. And the only way that they knew how to deal with it was to quarantine the person, to put them outside into its, their own little colony, if you will, where they were completely cut off and separated from their family, from their friends, from the synagogue, from religious life, from cultural life, from their business. And so it was not only physically debilitating, but it was socially um, and spiritually uh, separating. In other words, these people became untouchable. In fact, to touch a a person who had leprosy was to become unclean. And so we see actually in Leviticus chapter 13, you can read that at another time, and it details how a priest was to diagnose this disease. In Leviticus chapter 14, we see um, how one might purify somebody who had been recovered from some form of leprosy. And again, remember, leprosy doesn't have, can be any type of flaky um, skin disease. The, the, the difficult thing here was that it was something that was that cut you off from your family, cut you off from your fa- friend. It made you a social outcast. It made you somebody who nobody would have contact with. And this man full of leprosy. In other words, don't believe that this man simply had just a bad case of dandruff. This man was full of leprosy. And I want us to take a look at his faith because we have much to learn about Christ um, from observing this man's faith because it says, while Jesus was in one of the cities there came a man full of leprosy, and when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and begged him. First of all, it's in one of the cities. So it seems as though this guy has removed himself from the quarantine that he was supposed to be under. In other words, he was supposed to be separate and not come into much contact with the public. In fact, when lepers were near somebody who didn't have leprosy, they were to cry out unclean so the person could get out of the way. This man was full of leprosy. And in fact, too, there were some places where Jewish law required that if a leper came into a populated area, he was to be stoned. Death penalty. This man, this man, full of leprosy, says, forget all that. Jesus is in town. I'm going to find Jesus. They may kill me, but what does that matter? A, if they stone me, I probably won't feel it. Number two, it'll be less. What's the big deal? All I do is die. It's better than the life I'm living. Jesus is nearby. I'm going to throw myself at his mercy. There's a couple of things. First of all, he has nothing to lose. He recognizes his condition and he recognizes that he is in a desperate state. Second of all, we note that he is his humility. 
He recognizes his need and he falls on his face before Christ. Man's not trying to say, well, I really don't have leprosy or it's not that bad or anything like that. Or some people have it worse than I do. So, you know, no, I am in desperate need. I have a, a disease that is going to kill me. It just hasn't yet. But any day I'm a dead man. And Jesus, will you have? I'm coming before you and I am begging you, Lord. I am begging you. And note the humility in his request. If you will, you can make me clean. This is a man who I believe has great faith. But he's not a man who presumes upon Christ. He is not a man who says, well, I have faith, so you've got to do this. No, he's saying, if you will. Notice what he doesn't say. He does not say, if you are able. He says, if you are willing. I think he knows good and well that Jesus is able to do what he's asking him to do. I have no doubt that you are the sovereign Lord of the universe and you are able to make me whole. Here's the issue. Are you willing? After all, look at you, the Holy One of God, and look at me, the despicable wretch that I am. Would somebody like you be willing to have anything to do with somebody like me? That's the question. Not are you able. Oh, I know you're able. You are the Holy One. You are the Christ. You are the Pure One. You are the King of Kings. And look at me. I am just a poor, wretched, miserable leper. Would somebody like you be willing to have anything to do with somebody like me? That's the request. And Jesus then gives a response. And the response is this from Jesus. He stretched out his hands and touched him and said, I will be clean. There's a couple things here that we see from Jesus in this. First of all, he stretches out his hand. And we should note two things when Jesus stretches out his hand. First of all, we note power. See, you go back in Scripture and you can see when the Lord stretches out His hand, mighty things happen. And the Lord stretched out His arm and great things happen. And the Lord stretched out His hand and mighty things happen. And the Lord stretches out His hand. Something big is about to happen. But not only do we see the power of God, but we see the compassion and mercy of God. He not only stretches out His hand in power, but He stretches out His hand and touches the untouchable. This man perhaps had not felt the loving touch of another human being for who knows how long. His wife couldn't touch him. His kids couldn't hug him. Nobody would have anything to do with him. They had to stay a distance away from him. And Jesus, in great power and in great compassion, puts his hand on him and says, Oh, not only am I able, I am willing to be clean. It's interesting that nobody ever accused Jesus of being defiled after touching lepers. The law said that you were unclean when you came into contact with a leper. 
The interesting thing is Jesus was never made unclean, but rather defiled or made whole. And so Jesus now stretches out his hand in both power and compassion and makes the man clean. He then tells this individual, he says, Now go and show yourself to the priest and make an offering for your cleansing as Moses commanded for a proof to them. There's a couple of things here. We've talked a little bit about um, this this testimony now that um, that Jesus tells the man to go and do. And we've talked about how come Jesus always told people, often told people to be quiet and not say things. And like I, I'd mentioned, I've mentioned in the past, this is amongst Bible students sometimes refer to as the messianic secret, why Jesus kept his messianic identity uh, a secret. And there are a number of reasons, and, I, and I, I've given one or two, but one is, is that people too often begin to desire the gift, not the giver. They begin to overlook what the miracle pointed to. They only see the miracle. In fact, that's what we're going to see. People came to Jesus, and oftentimes they came to him simply because they wanted what was good for them. They wanted the miracle. They did not want the miracle worker. So Jesus tells them, go, don't tell anybody, but go and give, share this with the priest and um, make yourself known to the priest and make an offering. So we assume perhaps he did this, and this is probably interesting, because when he comes to the priest and he says, here I am, I'm a leper. Remember me? I was full of leprosy, and now here I am clean, and I have to assume that this priest or whoever was there had no idea what to do. And the reason is, isn't that people with some sort of skin disease weren't often dealt with? Probably nobody with full-blown leprosy had ever been healed. We see Naaman healed in the Old Testament, and that's about it. Some of you might bring up Miriam, but it's kind of a special case. And so this guy shows up to the priest and says, "Here I am, the leper, and I am completely cle- I am completely cleansed." And I'm sure this guy had no idea what to do. The point of this was Jesus said, "Do this um, as proof to them." And I think this is talking about as proof to the priest. In other words, when you see this great miracle, you will know that the kingdom of God has come. In fact, this is what um, when when John is questioning, when John is in prison and he's questioning his, and he sends his disciples to Jesus and he says, "Are you the one, or should we look for somebody else? Are you the promised Messiah, or should we look for somebody else?" Jesus responds this way, and um, Luke seven twenty two he says this: "Go and tell John what you have seen and heard. Blind receive their sight, the lame walk." Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear. In other words, are you the Messiah? And Jesus doesn't answer with a declaration of who he is, but rather a declaration of what he does. And by observing what Jesus has done leads to the understanding of who Jesus is. John says, are you the one? And Jesus says, lepers are healed. Go and show yourself to the priest so that there will be a testimony to them that the kingdom of God has come and the king is in your midst. I do not need to go to the priest and tell them who I am. I just simply act 
I do the acts of Messiah. I do the acts of God. And by that, they should know that the kingdom of God has come amongst them. There will be no excuse for the priest. When it comes time to crucify the Lord, there will be no excuse about what they are doing. And so, just a quick summary here. The cleansing, this cleansing then comes to the one who sees his desperate need and reverently, reverently appeals to the Lord who will in no way cast him out. Folks, so oftentimes leprosy is seen in parallel to the idea of sin. And this is an individual who is full of leprosy. But I would like to look a little at the parallel. Anybody who comes to the Lord in desperate need and says, Lord, I, I have a need for what you offer. I have a need to be forgiven of my sin. He will in no way cast you out. Not only is he able to forgive you of your sin, he is willing to forgive you of your sin. He has both power and compassion. Here's the issue. I think one of the number one issues that keep people from coming to Christ is that they just don't see that they have a need. I'm okay as I am. I'm not that bad. There are sinners, lepers, worse than I am. Perhaps that's true. But that doesn't absolve you or cleanse you from that which is plaguing you and that which will eventually kill you. Leprosy was a slow, painful, miserable death and sin is a slow, painful, miserable death. And it always leads to death. The wages of sin is death. That's just the bottom line. We need to confess our needs. I have some people say, oh, well, you don't know how bad I am. I'm the most wicked. If I came in your church door, the roof would collapse. No, it won't. First of all, don't think so highly of yourself. Your sin just isn't that great. You may think it is. But I'll tell you this. There are people who are formerly in ISIS who are believers in Jesus Christ right now. Let me tell you something. You haven't done that. Don't think so highly of yourself. There were SS officials who oversaw concentration camps who killed millions of people who fell on their face before a holy God and said, Lord, if you are willing, make me clean. And Jesus stretched out his mighty, powerful hand and touched them and said, I am willing to be cleansed. Your sin isn't that great. There is no sin that overpowers the power and compassion of our great God and Savior. But will you humble yourself and come before Him and say, Lord, look at me. Will somebody like you have mercy on somebody like me? The answer is absolutely. We should note then that Jesus, Luke notes that Jesus 
withdraws to desolate places and pray. This is a, a, a big theme for for Luke and his gospel. And I think that one of the reasons it's put here is to remind us that Jesus often got, aside, got away and prayed by himself. But I think it's also here to remind us that Jesus is praying because he's about to enter into a very difficult situation. He's about to encounter some serious conflict. And so he spends some time praying. And with that, then we come to maybe one of the more popular or well-known passages of text about Jesus healing this paralytic. And we should note the setting is that Jesus is in a house. Um, we don't know exactly where it was, but again, other Gospels tell us it's in Capernaum. It's in a house. And Luke makes sure he points out that there are um, there is a crowd, but there are some dignitaries in the crowd, and they are the religious leaders, the, law, the scribes and the Pharisees. These were the big wigs, and they come from all over, even from Jerusalem. I think it's interesting to note how Jesus or Luke mentions that the power of God was was with him to heal. That's an interesting statement. And I couldn't find a whole lot of places to cross-reference, so I think what we see here is that we see Jesus' utter dependence upon the Father. That he does not act on his own. That even when it comes to healing... Well, I believe Jesus could have healed by his own power and by his own authority because of who he is. He was dependent upon his gracious father. And so Jesus is in this house. We've got a lot of dignitaries present. We have the power of God um, available for him to heal. And as he is preaching, um, once again, he's teaching. That's a, a major theme. There is a man who comes and he is... Um, paralyzed, so he needs some faith or he needs some help, and he comes with his four friends, because he's paralyzed and helpless, and four, so his four friends put him on a stretcher and bring him to the house, and getting to the house was too big of a crowd, and so what do they do? They don't turn back around and go home and say, well, hopefully we'll have another time. In fact, we can learn a lot about faith from this individual. One of the things we learn about his or their faith is that they had an urgent need. In other words, they did not want to wait till tomorrow. Well, there's a big crowd. Maybe we'll wait until the crowd subsides or maybe we'll wait till a later time. No, we are desperate. There is no tomorrow. This situation needs to be dealt with now. And we will not wait. We will not wait for Jesus to finish. We will not wait for the crowds to subside. We will not wait for tomorrow. We will deal with this situation and we will deal with it right now. That's the first thing we learn about their faith. It was urgent. The second thing we learn is that it's persistent. In other words, nothing can stand in the way. Big crowd, no big deal. We'll find something else. So they go up on the roof. Both houses in those days had a stairway to the top of the roof, and they began digging a hole in the roof. And, and I don't know, have you ever, I, I just often think, so here's Jesus teaching, here's some folks up on the roof, and you guys know what it is to be downstairs and hear people walking up here, right? And sometimes it's a little distracting, right? Well, imagine you got somebody up on the roof, clomping along, and then they start digging, and then, I don't know, dirt starts I, mean, I just wonder what Jesus is thinking and doing, and, and, and how it seems like he it just seems like he keeps on going, you know, and 
roof materials falling down. And he just keeps on teaching. And boom, here comes this guy. People sometimes have ever, sometimes ask, what's the most distracting thing that has ever happened to you while you're preaching? And, and I haven't had any really huge, huge ones. I mean, I've had friends, people died, you know, and it's like, literally died. I mean, for me, the biggest one is, you know, babies cry. And that never really bothers me. I, I never hear people say, oh, I'm so sorry, my, my child was so fussy today. It's like, really, I didn't even notice. I did have, one time, I did have a lady... Uh, she was a, a wonderful, wonderful old lady. At a, I didn't mean old lady. I mean to say, she was an elderly woman, and she was a beautiful woman. <laughs> I didn't mean that. She was a beautiful woman, and she had been outside of church for so long because of some abuse, and she found a home here. And what a beautiful, beautiful person! But she also had a little bit of dementia, and uh, so. So she's sitting here in one of these pews, and I'm in the middle, and, she's, and, and, and I'm preaching, and she's clipping her nails, and you can hear the clip, clip, and her nails are flying, and I'm like, <laughs> and I'm like thinking, what if it goes and it hits somebody, you know? What? And that was probably the one thing that really kind of distracted. I'm like, well, man, what do I do? And I'm thinking, just look over here, you know? And she's over there, and I'm kind of like, so here's what's going on. Most things don't bother me. That one got to me. I don't know how Jesus dealt with tiles falling down and roof material coming down, but he seemed to be unfazed by it, and boom, here comes this guy. The next thing we learned about faith is that they were just. Dis- they were desperate. In other words, his condition required what nobody else can provide. And I'm sure they'd been to doctors. I'm sure they'd been to priests. I'm sure they'd been to, you know, every medicine person and everybody who had some sort of quack cure um, that supposedly would take care of it. I'm sure he had been everywhere and nothing worked. And in his desperate need, he said, there is only one person who can fix what ails me. And that is the person of Jesus Christ. And I will not wait and I will not stop to get to him. I will do everything that I need to do to get myself before the Lord of all creation. And boom, here he comes, lower down. It says, when he saw their faith, and I think that there isn't just referring to the four men who helped him, but the man who was healed. After all, Jesus, I don't know of anywhere where Jesus Heal somebody absent of faith. This man obviously had faith. Perhaps he rounded up his friends. Hey, you guys, come. Let's go over. Jesus is down in Capernaum. Let's go. And he sees their faith. And this is what he says. Man, or some of your translations say, friend, your sins are forgiven. I don't know if you remember way back in Luke chapter 1, verse 77 through 79 in Zechariah's prophecy. This is what he said about the coming Messiah. To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because the tender mercy of our God whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high. And so the Messiah would come and he would forgive people of their sins and he would do so by the tender mercies of their God. Today, this scripture is fulfilled in this man, son, friend, Man, your sins are forgiven. Well, that sounds pretty good until you realize there are a whole bunch of religious leaders hanging out there. 
And they begin reasoning amongst themselves. And they ask the question, who is this man? That's a great question. And in their reasoning together with one another, they come to the conclusion, who can forgive sin but God alone? Once again, great question. Astute observation. Who is this man? That's a great question. Who is this man? We're going to see that question come up over and over in the book of Luke. Who is this guy? After all, who can forgive sins but God alone? Because Jesus is claiming a prerogative of God if it walks like a duck and it talks like a duck and it has the actions of a duck and it has, if it walks like God, talks like God and displays the prerogatives of God, you must come to one conclusion. Jesus is claiming a divine prerogative. And who can do that but God alone? Here's the thing. This is a reason together. And their reasoning led them to proper questions, but because of their fallen nature, they could not. They were prohibited to go any further because this is what Jesus says. Jesus doesn't say, why were you reasoning? He says, why are you reasoning in your heart? Jesus goes to the very heart of the matter, to the very core of the issue. See, I don't care how much you reason. I don't care how much you logic. The problem is, is that you have, in your fallen nature, you will never, ever come to know the truth about Jesus Christ. I don't care how much reasoning you do. The problem is that the because of your fallenness, even your reason is flawed. Even your logic will not lead you. You need the illumination of the Holy Spirit. And I don't care how great of an apologetic you have. I'm not saying we shouldn't have an apologetic or a defense for our faith, nor am I saying that we should try to break down barriers through various uh, reasons. I'm just saying that here were men who knew the Scripture and they reasoned together. And Jesus said, the problem is that your reason is faulty. In fact, your reason is exactly right. Who is this man? Who can forgive sins but God alone? The problem is, is that in your, your, even your reasoning is subject to the fall. And your hardened hearts will never see the truth. Our fallenness extends even to our thinking. So Jesus then responds to them. Who is this who speaks blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? And I guess Jesus could go ahead and say, well, I'm God, but he doesn't. What he does is he does the acts of God, which should lead them to the proper conclusion. And here's the acts that he does. He says, which is easier? Is it easier to say your sins are forgiven or rise up and walk? Well, that's really simple. It's easier to say your sins are forgiven. Because if I say to somebody who is a paralytic, rise up and walk, the proof will be seen real quickly. If they don't get, if they don't get up and walk, then I'm proven a fraud. But anybody can say your sins are forgiven because that's kind of internal and subjective. And, you know, well, I don't know. Sure, your sins are forgiven. Uh, we'll just believe it. But I can't say rise up and walk without demonstrating that you actually get up and walk. Which is easier to say. Kind of ironic. I'm not going to get into that. But very interesting to spend some time thinking about that. The former is easier to say. Before we go further, let me make sure you understand that the religious leaders connected physical 
ailments or physical illness with sin. In other words, the reason why this guy is lame is because he's a sinner. All right? You can't separate those two things. In fact, we read in all sorts of various Jewish writings, whether it be in uh, various Mishnahs, commentaries on the Jewish scriptures, and in uh, a variety of, of Jewish writings, that, that the religious leaders associated sin with physical ailment. You can't separate the two. And in fact, when, when the, the disciples brought a blind person to Jesus, said, who, who sinned, this man or his parents? All right. So it's not that he has some sort of physical ailment. The problem is a spiritual matter that he is that his sins are keeping him are are the cause of his being blind. So what Job's friends kept saying the problem why why you're going through this is because you've sinned. So you can't separate these two things. And so when Jesus says your sins are forgiven, which is easier to say? Rise up and walk or your sins are forgiven. And then he goes on and says, so that you may know. So that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. I say to you, rise up and walk. And when this guy gets up and he takes up his pallet and walks out the door, it is evident that his sins have been forgiven. Jesus just did the very act of God. He forgives sins. Therefore, if he talks like God and claims a divine prerogative, he must be God himself. God in the flesh. God incarnate. So when the man gets up and walks the testimony that the kingdom of God has come and that Jesus is the king of that kingdom and you better listen to him. His walking affirms his forgiveness. Do you get that connection? Oh, but that's not all. Oh, Jesus just loads this thing up. Remember, what he does is a function of who he is. And he's about to make an audacious claim so that you may know what? That the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins on earth. I say to you, rise up, pick up your bed and go home. The Son of Man, let's not... Jesus referred to himself often in that way and we have a number of ways of considering the Son of Man. But make no mistake, when Jesus is claiming to be the Son of Man, he is making a divine claim. And you know this, right? Because we studied the book of Daniel. And you know that Jesus in the book of Daniel, or in the book of Daniel, we see the Son of Man figure. Let me read about the Son of Man. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one, like a Son of Man, was coming, and he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. The Son of Man has authority and dominion, and it's an everlasting dominion. It's a glory and a kingdom, and every people and every nation and every tribe will serve him in this everlasting dominion. This is what Jesus is making a claim to. I am the Son of Man. I am the one with all authority, dominion, and power. And the Son of Man has authority right now on earth to do what the Son of Man does. And that is, I forgive sins. I have the authority to forgive sins. And so Jesus, by his actions, 
reveals himself as the Son of Man and indicates the extent of his authority. I am the Son of Man. My authority extends to the place where I can forgive sin. And you say only God can forgive sins. You need to get, you are correct in that. So Jesus now pronounces the forgiveness of, his, of this man's sins. He demonstrates that full salvation has come, both physical and spiritual. And that by believing on the Lord Jesus Christ, you can have your sins forgiven. Because Jesus has that authority. Like I said, Jesus is declaring who he is by what he does. Who can forgive sins but God? It's the right question. Only God can forgive sins. And Jesus says, I have that authority. If he talks like God and claims the prerogatives of God and he acts like God, he must be God. Well, what's the response? The response is that this man got up and began glorifying God. Right? Good theology leads to doxology, glorifying God. And amazement seized them all, and they glorified God and were filled with awe, saying, we have seen extraordinary things today. And so, through these great and wondrous works, God is glorified. People ask me, what does it mean to glorify God? And for me, the most simple and clear-cut answer is that God is seen for who he truly is. There are so many skewed ideas about who God is. God is a great Santa Claus, or God is a, great, is a mean ogre, or whatever. But when God is seen for who he truly is, I believe that's what it means to glorify God and God has now been seen for who he truly is and people go away recognizing who he is and who is God he is the one who welcomes the poor in spirit he is the one who said blessed are the poor in spirit like you leper who have no claim on the kingdom of God and like you paralyzed man who have no claim on the kingdom of God you who are poor in spirit, you who are spiritual nothings, you who have no claim on the kingdom of God, welcome. The kingdom of God is now open to you. God loves the outcasts. And the book of Luke highlights how God loves the outcasts. And God is glorified when he is seen for the being of the, the God who loves the outcasts. And they go away saying, we have seen remarkable things today. What a great day it was. I'll close with this. As I've been stating all the way through, the deeds of Jesus reflect the person of Jesus. We know who he is because of what he has done. I suppose Jesus has just come in and told the, the Pharisees, well, I'm God. They probably would have rejected that. But instead, he forgives sins. And they rejected that. So instead, he heals a man born lame, which demonstrates that his sins were forgiven. Therefore, they can easily put two and two together. This was a testimony to the priest that Jesus is the king of the kingdom and that Jesus is a friend of sinners and all who will humble themselves will in no way be cast out. Let's stand and let's pray. If you are here today and you are someone who is in need of forgiveness. First of all, we need to recognize that I have need of forgiveness. And you can say somebody a bigger sinner than me, or at least I'm not Hitler or something like that. You can say that all day long, but the bottom line, maybe you aren't. Probably you aren't. 
But Hitler's not our standard. All right? If you measure by the wrong gauge, or you measure by the wrong standard, you will come up with a wrong assessment. If I'm driving in Canada, and I see a sign that says speed limit 50, and I'm in my American car, and I go 50 miles an hour, and I get pulled over, and I say, what's the problem? I was going 50. They said, you're going 50 miles an hour. It's 50 kilometers an hour. You should have been going 30 miles an hour. If you measure by the wrong standard, you will end up in violation or with a skewed measurement, a skewed result. And if you want to measure yourself by the worst of humanity, you will end up with a bad result. You can measure yourself by the sinless Son of God. That's the standard. And if you fall short of that, not if you fall short of Hitler or Pol Pot or some murderer that you knew, if you fall short of the standard of the sinless Son of God, then you are in need of the gracious mercies that the Son of God offers. And I would like to offer that to you today. Today, Jesus will in no way cast you out. You have not outstanded the grace of God. You can't do it. So now it's just time to lay down your arms and come before a gracious God and say, Lord, have, if you are willing, will you make me clean? And here's the bottom line. He is willing. He will stretch out his hand in power and compassion and make you whole again. So we are open today. If you would come forward during our last song, we would love to um, pray with you and spend some time talking to you about what it means to be a member of the kingdom of God. Let's sing.